Dr. A.W. Tozer was an Alliance pastor in the 20th century and a modern-day prophet, and he once made this observation. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any person is not what they may say or do at a given time, but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. And one author who drew my attention to this quote said this, The secret to who you really are and the key to your future is not your self-image, but your God image. What is God like? This morning as we continue our study in the book of Isaiah, we've come to a passage of scripture that at first may seem obscure and kind of irrelevant bit of history to us. But if you will bear with me, you will see how effective it is in accomplishing precisely this function. Either reinforcing our right views of God or correcting some wrong views of God that we have, all of which have intense personal significance. So kind of track with me carefully and bear with me until we get to the relevance issue. Uh, Just to give you some background, uh, we've been learning that uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, is, is pretty well imminently under threat of attack by Assyria, the vast empire that had been ruling that part of the ancient Near East for over 500 years. And Judah, the southern kingdom, because of her refusal to live by faith and instead try to make a treaty with Assyria, is headed for the same kind of disaster under the hands of Assyria. And so God has been focusing on those two through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, And this week now, he actually focuses on the kingdom of Assyria itself. First of all, how God sees Assyria. Verses 5 and 6. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Each of these two verses paints a picture of how God really sees Assyria. On the one hand, Assyria, as we've seen, is the, is the nation that is going to use its weapons to fight and destroy both Israel and Judah. But here God says, actually, I'm the one that's holding them. <laughs> They've got a weapon in their hands with which to execute judgment upon my people, but I'm the one who's got them in their hand and they're able to move because I'm moving their hands. Almost like a puppet, not quite. And the verse 6 says, changing the metaphor a little bit, all these vast military advances and conquests that Assyria has been having over the last years, they're moving and winning because I'm the one who's commanding them and I'm the one who's sending them. You take those two pictures together and it basically portrays to us that God is absolutely sovereign over this nation of Assyria and that all that she is doing, even in accomplishing her victories and her judgments upon Israel and Judah, are only because God is moving, God is sending, God is holding Assyria in his hand. So that's kind of the first picture, how God sees Assyria. Now how does Assyria see herself? (laughs) Totally different picture. Verses 8 to 11. But his heart, referring to the king of Assyria, but his heart does not so think. But it is in his thought to destroy nations, not a few. The king of Assyria doesn't see himself as somebody who is being held in the hands of the sovereign God. He sees himself as being totally sovereign, willing to conquer whichever nation he feels like it. And so he says, are not my commanders all kings? Guess that what makes him king of kings. If my commanders are kings, I am the king of kings, is basically what he's saying. And then he boasts about what he has already done. Are not Kalno and Carchemish? Uh, Is not Hamath like Arphad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hands has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem, 
Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria? Basically, his logic is very simple. He said, look at the kingdoms I've already conquered. And my past victories are a guarantee of my future victory. And he paints a picture of a relentless advance that Samaria is now next on the list and is doomed the way her other people were doomed. Notice the repeated focus on I and my hand. Shall I not do to Jerusalem as I have done to Samaria? By the strength of my hand I have done it. By my wisdom for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of the peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found a nest the wealth of the people. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken. So I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth and choked. His entire focus. He is totally taken up with himself and his prowess and what his hands can do. <laughs> and to show. And he also says. And by the way. It's been easy. I haven't had to really fight very hard. And he paints. And Isaiah as I said is full of images. And the picture he paints here is. You want to know how easily I've conquered all these nations guys. It's like collecting a bunch of eggs. Where the mother hen is gone. Nobody looking after the eggs. In fact, the kings were there, but they can't even flap their wings. They can't even chirp. I'm so powerful, so easy. That's basically how the king of Assyria sees himself. By the way, notice that in all of this, there's no appeal to their gods. Pagan gods are given lip service to, but what is supreme is the human ego. It is what I have done, what my hands are. That's what characterizes pagan nations. The interesting thing for us is we have an interesting confirmation from secular history. Uh, in the annals of the kings of Assyria, this was found recorded in one particular king named Adad Nirari who, who ruled from 911 to 891 BC. Notice the similarity between his words and this king's words. In these days when at the command of the great gods of my lordly sovereignty, my lordly sovereignty has manifested itself, going forth to plunder the goods of the land. I am royal, I am lordly, I am mighty. I am honored, I am exalted, I am glorified, I am powerful, I am brilliant, I am supreme, I am noble. So this was in the annals of the kings of Assyria. So it's almost exactly what the scriptures are saying for us. So Assyria's view of Assyria is supreme, arrogant, self-confidence at what I can do. Whereas reality is, God's got them in their hands and they can only do what God tells them to do. So one day God is going to deal with Assyria. Her time of reckoning is coming. And in verse 12 it says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Notice the focus. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion. What is God really up to? His focus is his people. Mount Zion represents Jerusalem. God through this conquering work of Assyria, arrogant though she may be, is actually accomplishing his purposes. And when those purposes have been finished, not one iota less, not one iota more, Assyria is history. That's basically what God is saying. God is sovereign enough to harness evil without being contaminated by it himself. The villains of this world are very useful to God, but they will still be held responsible. See, what the king of Assyria did happened to be thoroughly in keeping with God's will. How he did it had nothing to do with God's will. Totally because of his own arrogance. So paradoxically, is God on Assyria's side or not? Yes, he is, in that he's using her to accomplish his purposes. And no, he isn't because she's arrogant and he's going to be punishing her for one day for that. And this is the judgment that he describes on them. Therefore the Lord God will send a wasting sickness among his stout warriors. Remember these commanders who were kings? 
God says, no problem. I'll take care of them when the time comes. They're going to waste away. And under his glory, the Assyria's glory, of course, is a vast empire. Under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame. And it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. Notice the imagery here. Logs take a long time to burn. How long do thorns and briars take? They're gone in a second. They flash up in a moment and they're gone. Basically, it's a metaphor for saying when Assyria's time comes, even though she's been growing for 500 years, she'll be gone in a day like we saw in our, own, in our own time how quickly this vast structure called communism disappeared you know, when the walls began to fall in 1989. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. One, two, three, four, that's how a child counts. He said that's, that's how many trees are going to be left. This is a picture of a total devastation and judgment of Assyria and that is what is awaiting her. And that sets up the word of grace for Israel and and Judah, verses 20 to 26. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, which is Assyria, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. Last week we saw the arrogance of Israel. We saw the lying prophets. We saw the destructive self-seeking and the biting and the devouring of one another. And we saw the wholesale violation of social justice. And God says, Israel, in spite of all of that, there will be a remnant among you that will be saved. And Judah's remnant, we've been hearing throughout the book of Isaiah, that holy seed that is the stump, that small group of people who in the midst of uh, apostasy on a large scale are following the, the, the lead of Isaiah and are trusting and living by faith in God and listening to his word. And to encourage them, he says, by the way, when I destroy Assyria, it'll be like what happened at Midian. Midian was when God destroyed uh, the powerful armies of Midian through the 300 soldiers that Gideon had. You know? And they had to do nothing, just smash pots and shout. And of course, at Egypt, at the Red Sea, they were totally helpless. And God stretched out his hand and the Red Sea opened up. Basically, what he's saying is, those were two massive foes. Midian was so much stronger than you and Egypt was vastly powerful. There was no way, humanly speaking, that you could have won either battle. But I took care of it. Assyria is vast. There's no way you could do anything against them, but I will take care of it. So that's God's promise. Okay, so that's how God sees Assyria as a tool in his hand. How Assyria sees herself bold and arrogant. A day of judgment is coming for her when God has finished his purposes for his people and therefore he assures with a word of comfort, his people, even though they are headed for some suffering at the hands of the city. That's then. What about now? What does all this mean for us? Let me give you again this key passage that is going to anchor us at the middle, the beginning and the end. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any person is not what they may say or do at any given time, but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. And in the story of God and Syria, there are four things about God that we can learn, that corrects our God image. Reinforces it where we are correct, corrects us where we have been straying off the mark. First and foremost... 
the first thing we learn is God is absolutely sovereign over the nations. I mean, look, look at the extent of Assyria at that time. That little yellow circle in the end, that's when they started in 1300 BC, and this is where they got to by 650 BC. For five, six hundred years, this nation has been growing. It looked like the king of Assyria had lots of reason to boast. His hands have been doing amazing things for all this time. But it's all possible, says God, because I sent them, I commanded them, and one day it's going to stop. Today there are many, many nations driven by huge aspirations and sustained by the same kind of megalomaniac zeal almost. In some cases explicit, in some cases implicit. Think of a country like China growing massively in its influence. It practically owns the United States. And you think in terms of the debt that the U.S. has. And who holds most of the debt? China does. In staggering amounts and increasing if south of the border is any indication of what's going to happen. Think of a country like Saudi Arabia with its massive petrodollars. Do you know that after the chaos of 9-11, even though 15 of the 19 assailants were Saudi Arabian nationals, the citizens of Saudi Arabia didn't even need a visa to come into the States. Incredible, right? Why? Three-letter word, oil. They have them in their hands. On a much smaller scale, yet perhaps even more frightening, we got the megalomaniac in Iran, Ahmadinejad. Moving even further than the last time I mentioned his name when we first started studying Isaiah. Moving even closer to getting a nuclear arsenal. And with their connection to Hezbollah and Syria and all of those places, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to think what would happen if they actually get their hands and become a nuclear nation. And then we have this amazing phenomenon of a bunch of ragtag pirates in Somalia off the east coast able to hold huge big ships ransom, collect millions of dollars in payments and then finance the terrorist movement. Hey, listen. It is enough to make the stoutest heart to quake. Especially because all these nations, or most of them, have an avowed intention to destroy Israel and world domination. But, but if God's word is true, you know what he says? I'm in charge. They're all in my hands. They're only flexing their muscles because I'm moving them. They're only succeeding because I'm sending them. Over and over again after 9-11, the question was, where was God? Larry King loved to ask everybody that question. Where was God? You know what Isaiah would say? He was right there. He was behind it all. That's a staggering thing to say, but that's what the word of God asserts. They do what they do because I command them, I send them. So the next time you see something in the newspapers that makes your heart quake, remember. You might say, come on, that's really hard to believe. Do you think it was easy for Israel to believe this? Looking at that picture and saying, that's what's been happening for 650 years. They're eating up everything in sight and you tell me you're in charge, God? Yeah. So it was difficult for Isaiah's message to be believed. It's difficult for us to believe it today, but it's true. So guess what? It's a call to faith, right? So if we will not stand by faith, what? We will not stand at all when it comes to God's sovereignty and lordship over the nations of the world. Remember that the next time you read something that makes your heart quake. So that's the first thing we read. Yahweh is sovereign over the nations. Secondly, God is accomplishing his purposes for his people through the arrogance of the nations. Remember God said, when I have finished my work in Zion, through all this stuff, God is at work in the church. That's his primary focus.
First of all, it's a work of purification. It bothers us. It bothers us to think that God would use a godless nation to work in our lives. Assyria was known as the Nazis of the ancient Near East. They were an unbelievably cruel civilization. Read the prophet Nahum and you will see descriptions of their cruelty. They were ruthless in their conquests. And God is going to use a sinful nation like that? Well, this is why Jonah got so upset, right? He was sent to Nineveh, center of Assyria. He didn't want to go and preach there. Now, first of all, we have to remember that Israel had no moral grounds for objection. What was their problem? Arrogance. What was Assyria's problem? Arrogance. They were guilty of the same sins. The only difference was God was caring about his people enough to purify them through it. And on a much smaller scale, we're not living right now, as I said, with physical nations attacking us, almost of the time, maybe not. Although some days it comes pretty close. But I think in our own church, when uh, in September of 2004, we were suddenly hit with a lawsuit. Do you know what happened in the eight months between September 15, 2004 and April 21, 2005, when it was finally settled? God was focusing on us to purify us. If you remember the night before the hearing, we had a concert of prayer. What were we praying about? We were not praying for victory in the law courts. We were repenting. We were looking at our own hearts. God used the threat of external judgment to call us to repentance. And he taught us some new ways to repent. So God is still using attacks upon his people to accomplish the work of purification. Then of course the work of expansion as well. This is happening mostly through persecution. On, a, on the largest scales, uh, uh, the nation of China and Iran are probably the outstanding examples. When Mao took over in 1949 and all the missionaries were expelled, there were approximately a million Christians, I think, at that time. A missiologist has cataloged this. About half of them were killed. Another 300,000 of them were forcibly reconverted to communism. And the remaining 200,000 were distributed all over the nation of China. And were given the menial task of being postmen and grave diggers. Guess what? They got to visit home, home garbage collectors. Somebody said China became the greatest missionary training center we'd ever seen. Because they sent these people all over China. You know what's happened in the next 50 years after that? An explosion of the church in China. Iran, after Khomeini in 1979, has seen more conversions, more Bibles into the country than in the decades before when the Shah of Iran was in charge. God uses persecution to continue to advance his church as well. He's still using the nations to accomplish his purposes in Zion. So what is to be our response to this? It's the same thing again. 200 years after these events when God had destroyed Assyria through Babylon and now Judah was facing deportation by Babylon. We'll get to that in the latter parts, parts of Isaiah. There was a prophet named Habakkuk. And Habakkuk got, went before God one day and he was complaining. He said, God, look at all the evil in the land. Talking about his own people. There's social injustice, there's people, moral evils, all kinds of things. God, why are you silent? God said, don't worry, I'm not silent. The Babylonians are coming. And then Habakkuk got angry. He said, what? How can you use a wicked nation like that to judge your people? On the one moment he was complaining about the wickedness of his own people. And then when God said, I'm going to send Babylon to judge you, he said, you can't do that. I'm going to stand and wait what you have to say to me, God. I demand an answer is what he said. You know what I'm saying, God? The just shall live by faith. So here again, here we are. It's a call to faith. So if we will not live by faith, we will not stand at all. In this day, not only that God is sovereign, but that God is using the nations to accomplish his purposes in his church of purification, of expansion. Here too, it is a call to faith. A third thing we learn is that God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. Assyria 
was a rod in God's hand, right? So Assyria could rightly say, then don't punish me, God. I mean, after all, you just finished telling me that I'm an instrument in your hand, that I'm doing all these things because you are sending me and you are commanding me. Who can resist you? So don't blame me. But God said, no, I do blame you. You're going to be punished. What that says to me is that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both equally true. And this works itself out in our... It's it's practically so significant and there is so much wrong thinking when it comes to this that it gets us into trouble one way or another. Let me illustrate to you in three areas. First of all, in salvation. In salvation, we see this intersection of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The Apostle Paul, writing to, to the Romans, talks about the divine side first. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Meaning it's up to me. And he explicitly says, so it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is totally sovereign when it comes to his salvation. And in fact, we know that that's what he's saying because he anticipates an objection. He says, you will then say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Uh, Paul doesn't even bother to answer the question. You know what he says? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Don't you ask God questions like that. That's total sovereignty. But now, go to the book of Acts, and in Acts chapter 16, when Paul is in jail, and the jail cells go open, and the jailer thinks he's going to get killed, what does the jailer do? He kneels before Paul and Silas, and he says, the jailer fell down trembling before Paul and and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) Now you know, Paul wrote Romans... So I could easily have expected Paul to say, well, actually, you can do nothing. Hey, jailer, it's not up to you at all. It's all entirely up to God, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's entirely human responsibility to respond at this point. So divine sovereignty and human responsibility both intersect when it comes to salvation. What is true of salvation is also true of growth. In Philippians chapter 2, where we are told to... um, Live out the mind of Christ. Specifically a humble mindset of service. Whose responsibility is that? God's or ours? Look at what Paul says. Therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking about this mindset of being humble servants. Work it out. Whose responsibility? Ours. But then look at the next verse. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You better be humble people. Work it out. But guess what? God gives you the desire to be humble and God gives you the ability to be humble. There it's all divine sovereignty. Divine action and human responsibility, both working together. In salvation, in maturity and growth. And thirdly, in ministry as well. Let me give you both two illustrations. One in preaching and one in evangelism. My past week has been like most weeks when to get to this point. I start studying on Tuesday and mostly on Wednesday. I pour over the Bible. I crack my commentaries. I look at the Hebrew and look at the Greek and uh, spend time trying to get the basic ideas. What is it that this text is really saying to our people? How do I put it together? I work to get the right words. I write out my whole sermon and then leave things out and put other things in. And then I get the PowerPoints ready. And then I spend Friday and Saturday internalizing that whole message. Who's been, who's been doing all the work? Me. If I didn't do any of this, you will know very quickly. On the other hand, all the way through from Tuesday to Sunday, I'm also praying. I begin Tuesday morning and say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see some wonderful things out of your law. I, I plead with him for the wisdom to be able to understand. To be able to hear what he wants me to say to the people. 
When I get the whole sermon ready, and I've been praying for sense for that, then I have to breathe life into these dry bones, and I have to pray that God will... And if I don't do that, you will know that too. So whose job is that? That's all God's. So divine sovereignty and human responsibility intersect in my preaching every week, from Tuesday to Sunday. And what is true in evangelism is true in missions too. Uh, in, uh, true in preaching is true in evangelism. Think of our Easter celebrations. Look at all the work that has to be done. Jerry and Maggie and the team have got to cook and people have got to clean up and set up the tables and there'll be parking lot attendants and you'll be parking off the premises and walking across here and inviting friends and distributing. Whose works? All human action, right? <laughs> Hoodles of it. If you don't do that, there won't be any celebration Easter. But we're also going to pray through the whole period. You're already being told to pray about whom you're going to invite. Because unless God prepares the heart, they're not going to come. I'm going to be praying for my Easter message. Our worship leaders will be praying. We have prayer teams that are going to be praying before, during, after. Why? Because it all depends on God. It all depends on us and it all depends on God. Human action, divine sovereignty. In salvation, in growth and in ministry. Listen, the Bible teaches both of these. You leave out one, it's all furious action and desperation. You leave out the other, it's laziness. Put the two of them together, there's a beautiful synergy between divine action and human responsibility. We work like it all depends on us and we pray like everything depends on God. The intersection of the two is mystery. You can't explain it. And that's when we go wrong. To try and explain it. And then we usually go on one side or the other and we're in trouble. The intersection of sovereignty and responsibility is mystery which means it calls for what? You guessed it. Faith. If we will not stand by faith here, we will not stand at all. Faith when it comes to God's sovereignty over the nations. Faith when it comes to the fact that God is using the nations to purify His people. Faith when it comes to the fact that sovereignty and responsibility have a mysterious interaction and we hold the two of them together in practical tension in our lives. You drop either one of them, you're in trouble. And then the fourth and final thing and this was actually brought to my mind more as Sheila and I were talking about it. God will not tolerate arrogance in ministry. Yes, Assyria was used by God, but she was arrogant and God took care of it. You see, all of us who are involved in ministry, whether upfront ministries like preaching and worship leading, or serving at tables, working in neighborhood connections on Tuesday, walking the neighborhoods and praying, inviting, for whatever it is, wherever and whatever you're working in family ministries, we expect to be used by God and we should be. I, mean, I, expect, I expect that the preaching of the word will affect people. You should expect that when you are serving God in various ways, that people are being led in worship, children are learning about God, small groups are growing under your leadership. And the more we hold divine sovereignty and human responsibility together, meaning the more we pray and work hard, Guess what? We are going to be more effective. Here's the problem. The more effective you are, the more you will receive praise. And immediately you're in trouble. I mean, let's face it. I, it's every Sunday for me. Every Sunday. I go through this whole anguish and you are such an encouraging people. You, you always encourage me. There are people who have done it regularly, week after week. Immediately there's a temptation to arrogance. Now the problem is though, you can't not do things well just to avoid this problem. 
Augustine said that. He said, in other areas of my life, I can actually test myself how well I'm doing by denying myself. In other words, he said, if gluttony is my problem, I can see how well I'm doing conquering the problem of gluttony by deliberately fasting. But you cannot do, test the test of arrogance in the same way. It would be like foolishly like me of saying, I think I'm just going to preach Bradley for the next few weeks. In fact, Augustine said, what greater madness than this can be conceived? So it's a catch-22. You are supposed to work hard. You're supposed to trust in God's power. You get more effective. You get affirmation. And immediately you're tempted to pride. So how do you solve this problem? Because God will not handle arrogance. He will not accept it from us. He will deal, he will deal with arrogance. Because to be arrogant in ministry is to touch his glory. And that is a sin of exchange glory that he will not tolerate. So how do we get rid of How do we deal with this? Let me share with you five or six things in my life that I've tried to practice, however imperfectly. I don't think your situation is any different. Mine just happens to be more public than some of your ministry, that's all. In fact, the only ministry that's more public than preaching is worship leading. Which is why there are more problems in music ministries and churches than anywhere else. Because it's artistic, you see, and it's so powerful. First of all, I remember many, many years ago, Mike Wilkins, my young pastor, young, he's just a few years younger than me, that's all, he's getting old too, you know, we've known, we've known each other for 25 years. Uh, Mike and I, many, many years ago, when we were both a lot younger, you remember the time when leaders were falling like nine pins, you know, Jim, Jim Baker, Gordon McDonald, the respectable ones and the not so respectable ones. So he and I made a commitment to each other that we will pursue the blessing of obscurity. And we both made a commitment to God that if nobody knows us outside the four walls of our church, we would be quite happy and pleased to die that way. So just just pursue. Pursue the blessing of obscurity. Ask for it from God. In practical terms, for me, it has meant pursuing depth rather than breadth. So right at the outset of my ministry, one of the things I said to God was, I will deepen my ministry where I am. I will give my sole attention to deepening my ministry. And Lord, you take care of broadening it. So that was the practical outworking of of seeking obscurity. Now sometimes God will broaden, as he has done in my case. What do you do then? I don't know whether this story is true or not, but I heard it said once that Billy Graham, after after a crusade is over, or after a night of preaching is over, when when the flocks of people are are out of the front, that he would be found in some small room somewhere on his knees, asking God to forgive him for whatever sin there was in his life that kept even more people from coming to Christ. I don't know whether he did that or not, but that's, that's called brokenness. You practice the ministry of brokenness regularly. That's why, that's why practices such as Lent are so important. That's why every Lent season we try to encourage you to take those 40 days. Because you know what happens? Any temptation to arrogance for me on Sunday, God takes care of by the time next Sunday rolls along. Because Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm, hap- I'm confronting myself with the cross. And after five days of dealing with sins in your own life, you are nicely broken and ready back to get back into this pulpit. The glories of Sunday, as far as their human glories, all disappear very fast. That's why we need practices and habits of self-examination. That's why last week we read that, Lord, it's been a long time since I've stepped back and looked at the condition of my soul. God wants us to do this, not to, because he likes to see us grovel, but he just wants us broken before him so that he can work powerfully through us. And then learn to relate to the word of God apart from ministry. I I read and study God's word totally apart from ministry as well. If if from tomorrow morning I was told you will never preach another sermon again, I will continue to read and study God's word. 
Because it has ultimately nothing to do with ministry. It has to do with food for your soul. Then here's something else. Give somebody the right to speak to you about arrogance in your life. Again, my friend Mike, Mike and I, uh, early on, we uh, were both talking about a very well-known figure in, 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 in the Christian world at that time. Godly man, great preacher, and so both of us admired him much. But near the end of his life, he got a bit cranky. And he started saying a few silly things, like he was not going to appear on this platform along with Billy Graham because Graham is too much of an ecumenist and he has Catholics on the end, this, that, and the other. So Mike and I, I made an, and this time, of course, it's a problem of an older person, so I had to tell Mike, who's a good 10 years younger than me, I said, Mike, if you ever see me becoming foolish like that in public, please come and get me off that stage as fast as you can. So in this problem, you have to give the right to somebody younger. And then last night, one lady pointed out to me, don't forget your wife. And I don't forget her. That goes without saying, that she serves that function in my life. And so we need to give, but, but we don't take it from our spouses at times. The ones who know us the best are the ones we don't want to hear from at all. Because they know us too well, you see. Although that's why God actually gave you your spouses. It's one of the primary functions of marriage. To be able to grow in holiness. So, but somebody, give somebody the right to speak to you when they see arrogance in your life. Especially in touching God's glory. And then perhaps most important of all, practice secret service. Every now and then do something that nobody knows anything about. I'll tell you, you will not know until you do it how true John Ortberg when he said, the soul hates service and it absolutely screams at secret service. Why? Because we just want people to know that I did this. So somewhere along the line, practice a little bit of secret service. Do something and don't tell anybody about it. You'll die first. But that's part of taking up our cross and then you will live. So here again, guess what folks? It's a call to faith, right? It's faith that he will exalt us. Because that's what he said. He said, you have the mind of Christ. I will exalt you in the way and in the time and in the manner that will not hurt you, will bless you and bring glory to me. Only he knows how to do that. We will always get it wrong if we try to exalt ourselves. He will never get it wrong. So if we will not stand by faith, we will not stand at all. So let me remind you one more time. What is the most important factor about you and me? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God himself and the most portentous fact about any person is not what they may say or do at a given time but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. If you get nothing else from the sermon and you got this, you're further ahead than when you were at the beginning. So, Faith in troubled times is what the book of Isaiah is all about. And specifically we are called to faith in four things. That God is absolutely sovereign over the nations. That he is accomplishing his purposes for his people through the arrogance of the nations. God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. And God will not tolerate arrogance in ministry. Just let them sink in for a moment. When Paul writes to his young charge, Timothy, about God's word, he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for four things. He said, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So here's my fourfold blessing today. For those of you for whom God's word or the service has come as teaching, may God grant you the grace to preserve that teaching. To bind it and seal it up for yourself and for the people that you might have it for at the right time. 
For those of you for whom this word has come as a rebuke, perhaps for arrogance in ministry, may you receive it as the encouragement of a loving God whose desire is to empower you for even more powerful ministry. For those of you who have received instruction today as correcting some error, may God grant you to persevere in that until it becomes second nature to you. And for those who have received training in righteousness, and I think that came today not from me or from the worship leaders, it came from Thomas's testimony. Because training in righteousness tells you how to get from one place to the other. And some of you here are going to be able to do things a year from now that you wouldn't even dream of right now. May you receive that training in righteousness. May he show you the next step of obedience that you need to take. Go in Jesus' name.